Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be here with you tonight in the evening of our satsang. And tonight, I hope to inspire you in your spiritual practice and in your spiritual quest by presenting to you the character, the work, the personality of one of the great masters of the last 150 years. Yoga re-emerged approximately 150 years ago. Until 150 years ago, we didn't hear much about yoga. There were very, very few people who had contact with the mysticism of India and Tibet. And it was of a very peculiar order. You are going to find out legends about a mysterious French aristocrat called Le Comte de Saint-Germain, the Count of Saint-Germain, who lived approximately at the time of the French Revolution, and he was persecuted uh, because of the French Revolution, as most aristocrats in France had been at that time. And his servant was reported that he was sitting in the lotus pose one hour every day which again in Europe, nobody in 1770-something, nobody was sitting in the lotus pose, yoga. So this person must have had some information via the British channels, God knows, via travel and so on, for, from people from India and so on. So there has been something seeping into the West, but nothing well-known, nothing systematic, nothing of big spiritual relevance, until it came to the time of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa is the one who restarted the flow. <clears throat> Again, I could extend this commentary much more, but I don't need to. Why? And again, in about the middle of the 19th century, we had a revival of Hinduism and the method of yoga emerged. And of course, some people used it for therapeutical purposes, some people used it for mystical purposes. But most of the gurus that we speak about modernly, the gurus of whom we have photos, photographic photos, because we don't have a photo of Abhinavagupta, we don't have a photo of Shankaracharya, we don't have a photo of Chaitanya and other. We don't have a photo of Mirabai, just to take a female one, or Laleshwari. These people lived in a medieval time, and we have only legends and stories about them. But starting with Ramakrishna, we have photos, we have films. We have the witness of some contemporary people who lived with them and they said, I lived together with Ramakrishna and he was smelling of tobacco or whatever. They were saying something concrete about what was happening there. And thus, most of the yoga gurus that I keep talking about to you to inspire you, to say, this is what Sri Aurobindo said. This is what Ramana Maharishi did. This is what Mahananda Mai was doing. This is what Ramakrishna Paramahamsa... It's all of it starting about 1850. In the second half of the 19th century, it started with Ramakrishna. Of course, it continued with his great disciple, the great Vivekananda of India, and other brothers of Vivekananda... Uh, guru brothers 
such as Swami Abhedananda, Swami Saradananda and others. There were about 12 Swamis who were the spiritual brothers of Vivekananda in the, what was called later the Ramakrishna Vivekananda mission. So that was one lineage and then of course other lineages started. There was the lineage of um, Lahiri Mahasaya, Sri Yukteswar and Paramahamsa Yogananda. There was the lineage of Ramana Maharishi, which contained just one person in the lineage, he himself. Then there was the emergence of Swami Shivananda Sarasvati in the 1930s. Then in the 1940s and 50s, there was the emergence of Sri Aurobindo. Approximately the time of Yogananda in the 1930s, we had that the India found out about Mananda Mai and you know that we keep peddling a certain number of gurus. There are a certain number of heroes. And many of the people who are the so-called heroes of modern yoga, which is what we disparagingly call monkey yoga here in Agama, such as uh, Krishna Macharya, BKS Iyengar, and this we never mention them among the gurus, because these people were not big gurus of yoga. None of them had the spiritual dimension of Shivananda, of Mahananda Mai, of Yogananda, of the great enlightened gurus. So whenever we speak about masters of enlightenment, either we talk about Milarepa in the 12th century, or if we talk about the ones whose photo we have, and who we know for sure, maybe Milarepa is a legend after all, no, it's like we don't have any physical evidence to prove that Milarepa existed. Like even his skeleton or bones are not known. Maybe he ascended to heaven physically. He dematerialized and went into the rainbow body. And that's why what we have are these gurus of the late 19th and 20th century. Some of them, especially in the 1970s and later, most of them did not survive. I think the last of these gurus, if I remember correctly, is Mahananda Mai, who passed away in 1984, if I remember correctly. Swami Shivananda passed away in 1963. Paramahamsa Yogananda passed away in 1953, or something like this. And therefore, most of Aurobindo in the 50s, and the list could continue. And thus, uh, we are inspired constantly by a list of approximately 10 big ones, 10 big enlightened beings, probably beyond 1984, even Mira Alfasa, the disciple of Sri Aurobindo, she probably lived beyond the 1980s. I'll have to check that one, it doesn't matter, but... These two women, Mahananda Mai and Mira Alfasa, they lived probably the longest of all this list of gurus. Of course, there exist today some gurus or people who are considered to be gurus today. One should never, one should always take it with a pinch of salt. I think the Christian tradition, both Catholic and Orthodox, has a very, very healthy habit. Nobody, nobody, nobody is pronounced to be a saint during their lifetime. 
You cannot be called Saint Nicholas or Saint whoever, Varvara, during your lifetime. The earliest was probably Mother Teresa, who was made a saint like five years after her death or ten years after her death, and the Vatican regretted it. Because after they called Teresa a saint, then somebody took out letters which they received from Teresa, Mother Teresa of India. She was Albanian born. And in those letters she expressed doubts about the existence of God. This is the woman we said it was a saint. That's why the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they want to wait a hundred years. They want to wait 200 years. And then maybe they discover that that person was secretly practicing homosexuality. Then they are not on the list of saints anymore. You know? So they wait until all the truths come to the surface. And then they can evaluate if there is some detail which is disqualifying the person from that. So they are filtering. In this way they are letting the history do its work. They are letting time do its work. And that's why we never really speak about the contemporary people as saints. No? Whatever guru you come and talk to me about, Guru Jiraj Kumar or Prem Baba or Swami or Sahajananda or others, we never call anybody a saint. Because maybe ten years later we will discover that they were doing some horrible stuff. And we have to let the dust settle down first for a hundred years. Then we can say, today we look back at the existence of Swami Shivananda. There are a couple of people who say nasty things about Swami Shivananda. But they are drowned in a chorus of 99.9% of the people who say Swami Shivananda was a great friend of humanity. He was a great yogi. He was a great enlightened being. He was a super beneficial human being. And in this way we know Swami Shivananda 99.99% was the real deal. And we can look up to Swami Shivananda because Swami Shivananda is a very good example. So, in the same vein, um, we, we know some things or you don't know some things. I was just checking right now if my satsang about the life of Ramakrishna is still on the channel of Agama on YouTube or wherever those are or not. And uh, we couldn't find it in a five-minute search. So I'm going to search for it because I have done some of these satsangs inspiring people with some of the big yogis. And uh, maybe those satsangs are lost. Maybe they have to be uploaded again. And they are on some hard drive of Agama here where they are of no use to anybody. Because if they would be online, they would inspire more people. And thus, uh, in this vein, in this trend, I wanted to come and inspire you with another one of these big ones, which you haven't probably heard about. Because this one was a great yogi who lived until, again, 1962 or 3. But he lived in Sri Lanka. He lived in Jaffna. He was a representative of the Shaiva Siddhanta, of the southern Shaiva school of India, 
which after the Kashmiri Shaivism is the second strongest trend in Shaivism. So this was a Shaiva yogi, a Shaiva saint, and he had the very funny name, Yoga Swami. He was called Yoga Swami. As simple as that. And uh, for the people who were Shaivas in Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka is divided in two cultures, the majority one is Buddhist, Buddhist like in Thailand and Burma, and a, a minority of Sri Lankans, they are of Tamil extraction, they are from the same uh, stock as the people from Tamil Nadu in the south of India, and they are Shaivas, they are Shaivistic in the Shaiva Siddhanta. Uh, unfortunately, these Shaivas of Sri Lanka, they got a very bad reputation in the last 15 or 20 years, because they were fighting for independence, they wanted to divide Sri Lanka in two states, a Hindu one and a Buddhist one, and it didn't work, and they were called the Tamil Tigers, and they got to be described by the Tamil government and then by the United Nations as a terrorist organization because they wanted to secede, they wanted to split from Sri Lanka, and they were using acts of subversion, they were using bombs and other such things, and it didn't get very popular, as you can imagine, and therefore the Shaivistic culture of Sri Lanka, which is minoritary, is quite strong, and in the 1960s, they didn't have these problems that there were some revolutionaries, secessionists or something. And because of this, uh, a character like uh, Yoga Swami was much better known and much better venerated. I have a text which I think is of good inspiration, which is written by a fellow called Shushunaga Viraperuna. That's a typical Sri Lankan Buddhist name or something or Hindu, I don't know from which family he belongs. But uh, this um, Shushunaga fellow, he is one of the spiritualists. He wrote this article in the late 60s or early 70s during the hippie times. Uh, in those years, he was a follower of Jiddu Krishnamurti, which again doesn't make him very... Uh, inspired spiritually for me because Jiddu Krishnamurti was, uh, I'm sorry to say it, in my opinion, was a pathetic spiritual teacher. He was spiritual, but as a teacher he was almost scarily uninspiring for people. And um, But maybe some did feel it's a matter of temperament in the end. And uh, this uh, Shushunaga, before he was with Krishnamurti, he had met personally with Yoga Swami, probably in the 1940s, 50s, early, early 60s. And um, therefore, he draws an image of a miracle man who lived there near the capital of Sri Lanka, Jaffna. And uh, I always loved to share with people this. I think I have done it even here in Thailand 15 years ago. I don't know if it was recorded. I don't know if it's one of those lectures which is lingering on one of our hard drives instead of being up there online and inspiring people. Fact is that today I'm doing it again because none of you has heard it and knows about Yoga Swami. And uh, I am first of all reading a six-page text from Viraperuna who has the advantage of being a sort of a neutral mind. 
the mentality. He says here that at the time when he met with uh, Yoga Swami, he was already an adept of Vedanta. And Vedanta, Sri Aurobindo has called Vedanta uh, Hindu Marxism. Because Vedanta speaks about God, but Vedanta speaks about God who doesn't do anything. A God who is dead, like the God of Nietzsche, or whoever said that God was dead. And um, therefore he was Vedantin, which is a very neutral form of mysticism. And then he became a Krishnamurti follower, which is an even more close to atheism type of spirituality, I would call it. And thus, in this way, when he talks about Yoga Swami, he doesn't talk in any sectarian way. He doesn't talk like a follower. He talks like a man who met with Yoga Swami, acknowledges the spiritual value of Yoga Swami, and tells you some very interesting facts about Yoga Swami. And I always have considered this important because gurus and spiritual practitioners are so different. And they have such different temperaments with each other that it's very beautiful to see other and other manifestations of God in men and in women in this way becoming inspired that you are your own person. You don't have to be like Shivananda. You definitely don't have to be like me. You don't have to follow in the footsteps of Mananda Mai or those of Yoga Swami. Just look at them, learn from them, try to get inspired by their states of consciousness, by their vision of God, and for the rest, follow your star, open your Sahasrara, be everything that you can be in this lifetime. So, the text which Shushunaga wrote, is a small brochure. He published it like a brochure of not even 10 pages. It's called Homage to Yoga Swami. He pays homage to him, although he is not a follower. He can acknowledge, <coughs> and it has the title, A Meeting with a Liberated Soul, which, by which he gives grants to Yoga Swami the fact that he believes that Yoga Swami was indeed a liberated soul, which is the ultimate attribute in a Hindu Shaiva environment. Even while Yoga Swami was alive, he had a considerable reputation in Ceylon, that's Sri Lanka, the old British name for Sri Lanka, and India as being a liberated sage. He had even been hailed as the greatest seer the world had known since Shankara. It's a typical Indian exaggeration, because there have been other huge ones. There were skeptics who dismissed him as just another yogi with psychic powers. Even those who questioned whether he had been fundamentally transformed in the spiritual sense, like if he was a Jivan Mukta, did nevertheless readily concede that he must have had some extraordinary psychic powers. Yoga Swami was reputed to have been remarkably clairvoyant. He was known to disappear from one place in space and reappear at several places at the same time. Three of his devotees claimed to have met him 
at the same moment in time in places as far distant as Jaffna in Sri Lanka, Madras in India, and London in England. They simply said, I met with him yesterday at 2 o'clock. No? One of his close friends recalled incidents which illustrated that anything wished by Yoga Swami immediately materialized. For instance, this person had accompanied Yoga Swami on a long walk in the countryside across many miles of rice fields. Yoga Swami, having experienced the pangs of hunger and fatigue, had casually wished for a car to ride back to town. In those days, there were in 1940 or whenever this happened in Sri Lanka, there were no cars almost at all. No sooner had he uttered this wish that there were several cars on the scene, which in Sri Lanka was a pretty unusual thing. The drivers of the cars were all requesting Yoga Swami to step into their cars. The drivers were competing for the privilege of being of some assistance to a holy man. On this occasion, Yoga Swami raised his hands and exclaimed how dangerous it is to wish things. Spiritually liberated souls, I was told, now Shushunaga talks, were incapable of wishing in the psychological sense as their egos had dissolved, but their wishes were confined to purely physical needs. This is what we teach you in yoga, that it is impossible to survive without a residue of ego. Ma Ananda Mai tried to dissolve her ego completely and then she couldn't even put food in her mouth because that's an egoistic act. It's food for you and it's ego. And they had to feed her with a spoon like a baby because she was sitting there like... And she would not eat for a month and die. And therefore, um, there, of course, there must be a reminiscent ego which takes care of the survival of the body and a few other things. On another occasion, at the end of one of Yoga Swami's rare visits to Colombo, that's the second largest city in Sri Lanka, a large crowd of admirers had thronged the railway station in Colombo to see his departure. Some devotees were chanting hymns in Sanskrit and Tamil, while a few others were offering him garlands of flowers. It was getting late, and one of Yoga Swami's friends had alerted him to the importance of catching the train in time. Don't worry, replied Yoga Swami assuredly, the train cannot leave without me. That evening, indeed, there had been some engine trouble, and the train failed to start at the right time. After leisurely greeting all his friends, Yoga Swami finally decided to enter his railway compartment, and the train thereupon started to move. I guess today, in the woke culture, people will say, what a pig. There were people who had to get in time somewhere with that train, and Yoga Swami, like a swine, delayed the train for his own personal interest, so that that's how mentalities change. Now, what is this an admirable city of a great yogi? Or is it some super egocentric little monster called Yoga Swami? Although I had heard Shushunaga speaks of Yoga Swami, there were several reasons why I never felt a compelling urge to visit him up to the time of my interview. First, 
at that time I could not afford the train fare to Jaffna, which is in the far north of Sri Lanka. So he was a poor man, this journalist. Second, it seemed to me then, which now I think was somehow wrong, that one must discover God or the truth oneself and that no external agency could really help one in this matter. This is the opinion of Krishnamurti, that no text, no tradition, no guru can help you to discover God. 90% of the gurus of India, Shivananda, Ramakrishna, Yogananda, among others, they on the contrary say that the guru is indispensable in you finding the divine. So this Krishnamurti... Vira Peruna type of uh, mentality, it seems to be completely wrong. But that was his thing. Like, I don't need Yoga Swami. I, God is in me. Good. Good, good luck with that. Third, Yoga Swami chased away most of his visitors. Many persons unfortunately regarded Yoga Swami as a mere fortune teller with the gift of making accurate forecasts because apparently he had some foresight, he had some clairvoyance. At one time, Yoga Swami had a stream of visitors every day from dawn to dusk. They came to him with various personal problems. Those who were privileged enough to be received by him usually regarded themselves as doubly blessed. Some of those who were rebuked by Yoga Swami, he could be a bit of a nasty fellow sometimes, regarded themselves as spiritually chastised. If Yoga Swami wished to avoid a visitor, he was known either to disappear or to make himself invisible for long periods of time. We are not sure if this was a ninja skill. They say that he was going on long walks in the countryside, but some people, they may claim that he was actually turning invisible. Nobody knows for sure if this was a city, or it was just a way that he needed his space. He, was, he liked to be a lonely person, and therefore he liked his privacy, and people were dri driving him tired too much. An interesting explanation of Yogaswami's behavior is the following. The minds of the human beings who are in bondage are in a state of animation, animated by the karma in the Hindu-Buddhist sense of this term. This karma is no other than the sum total of the innumerable psychological influences that have conditioned the mind and hence stand in the way of liberation. Those psychological factors converge to create the delusion of the I or ego. Liberated persons, however, experience a state of pure consciousness owing to their transcending this shell of the self. From this standpoint, it would be almost correct to describe the state of liberation as one of non-animation, since the liberated mind would not be animated by karma. Uh, it's not far from the truth, although he doesn't understand fully the subject, but that's why Nir uh, Buddha called his state of enlightenment nirvana, which means blowing off, extinction. So therefore, there is no more desire, karma, peculiar. But then the person stays like, is this person alive or dead? No? Psychologically, emotionally, it's like it's a death. But the yogis define it as shanti, as a state of peace. 
not as a state of death at all. <clears throat> as a liberated mind is therefore comparable to inanimate matter, yet not without life, but on the contrary, because it's the divine life in there, it's like God, it could be animated or given momentum by a non-liberated mind, which would necessarily be characterized by animation or karma. This is a Buddhist theory, actually, about the water element, that the water element, the wisdom of the water element in Tibetan Buddhism, is called the wisdom of reflection. That an enlightened being who manifests on Svadhisthana, which is often the case because the planet is on Svadhisthana, is just reflecting the environment. And this reflecting of the environment is like being psychologically like a chameleon. It's a chameleonic thing. You are with shy people, you behave shy. You are with bold people, you behave bold. It's like your consciousness is a mirror which mirrors people's ego, people's desires, people's samsara, people's karma, and so on. Again, this theory is not entirely true. It's part of a complex understanding. But this Viraperuna, he is not a great metaphysician. He is quoting different uh, mystical theories that people were vehiculating, and this is one of them. Besides, a liberated mind has the characteristic of a mirror in which a non-liberated mind can see itself as it truly is. And again, it's true, I can confirm this, but it's not 100% of the truth. Yeah? Because, for example, Jesus was not behaving like a mirror. Or maybe in some peculiar private circumstances that we don't know much of. Because he was solar, he had a mission to fulfill, and he didn't have the time to reflect people's crap. But some gurus who will show you their Svadhisthana, they could be mirror-like. It's the mirror-like wisdom from Tibetan Buddhism, Buddha Vajrasadva, Dhyani Buddha Vajrasadva, which belongs to, or um, uh, Akshobhya, two names, which belongs to the water element and therefore to Svadhisthana Chakra. Now, he continues, if Yoga Swami seemed to lack an unchanging personality, like he was like a chameleon, it was presumably because his personality temporarily acquired the characteristics of his visitors. Not surprisingly, this is interesting, and you, if you will get to go more with the spiritual people, you will see that sometimes it applies just like that. Not surprisingly, therefore, proud persons invariably found Yogaswami behaving arrogantly towards them. To those who are haunted by fears, Yogaswami's manner seemed timid. A South Indian sannyasi had recited a stanza from Bhagavad Gita to Yogaswami. You know, people come talk to Yogaswami and they say, yes, yes, Yogaswamiji, it is exactly as Krishna, he had to play smart to tell him that he read Bhagavad Gita and he had to have a spiritual reply. And he said, as Krishna said in the Gita, blah, 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 blah. And he quoted him a stanza from the Gita. Thereupon, Yogaswami had repeated the stanza with alterations and clever puns on certain words, so that the sacred lines acquired an erotic significance. He simply mutilated Bhagavad Gita, exactly as you'd say, and Jesus say, uh, you should all be 
perfect like my cat in heaven is. You know, because Jesus said you should all be perfect like my father. But you could be perfect, which is a term which cat lovers use about their cats. Because the cats are purring. You know, so you could be perfect as the cat of my father in heaven is. You know, people would feel like I'm doing blasphemy. Because I'm misquoting Jesus, giving a meaning which is totally idiotic. You know, like did Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati go crazy? He did such a thing with Bhagavad Gita and giving it an erotic meaning, like a smutty meaning. And that person was like, what is this? The famous Yoga Swami, like what the fuck is this? No, He was doing this kind of shit and many others were. The 16th Karmapa was famous for known the Tibetan Karmapa, the previous one. Yoga Swami could not help giving that lesson, for he was merely reacting to hidden sexual imagery in the unconscious mind of that sannyasi. So that sannyasi was neurotic, because he had to practice Brahmacharya, and he was probably not succeeding, and he was full of sexual obsessions, and this guy talking to him, he gave him Bhagavad Gita, the sexy version of Bhagavad Gita. You know, it's like, what? No. So the same chameleonic thing giving back something in particular. Consequently, this ascetic, like many other of Yogaswami's visitors, were not only irritated, but embarrassed. In a sense, Yogaswami was like a Zen master who awakened people from their psychological slumber by shocking them, even without deliberately wishing to do so. The people of Jaffna, held Yoga Swami with a curious mixture of veneration, affection, and fear. Some of his ardent admirers seemed more to fear than love him, because he used to be very straightforward and give it back to them. To be received by Yoga Swami, it was necessary to approach him without any ulterior motive whatsoever. That motiveless state of pure being seemed the unattainable, the zenith of spirituality indeed. If only one could attain that purified state of consciousness, would not one be oneself a Yoga Swami? Now the lack of confidence in my ability to face Yoga Swami without any recognizable motive was also an important reason why I had been curbing the desire to see him. He was finding himself lots of justifications for not Visiting Yoga Swami, basically. I had been walking, now it becomes a bit of a story, not an introduction. I had been walking a great distance among the seashore in Colombo. So he was living in the southern part of the island in Colombo. The fishermen were hurriedly pushing their boats on the sand before sunset at Dehiwala. Their cries and their baskets of fish disturbed the peacefulness of that quiet evening. So I walked away from them and chose an isolated spot on a rock facing the sea at Bambalapitiya, some local places there on the beach in Colombo. The skies were gradually getting lit with many colors owing to the setting sun. The evening was pleasantly cool and the soothing sea breeze had an exhilarating effect on one's nerves. The ceaseless roar of the sea and the sight of the waves breaking against the rocks seemed an appropriate subject for contemplation. 
This is how some people do when they don't know the big methods of meditation like prana, uchara, laya, yoga, the big things. Uh, many people in India, they meditate on the circumstances, on the landscape, on the nature. So this guy said, why not meditate on the waves of the sea? Those tireless waves must have dashed against those rocks for millions of years, but the rocks remained unyielding. Was not the spiritual quest of man throughout the ages similar to that? Man endlessly searched and struggled to find truth or God, which seemed to have remained unknown and mis- which seemingly remained unknown and mysterious. The sea is comparable to the universal consciousness out of which waves or little egos spring. These waves, it's not his metaphor, it has been done centuries before him, but he borrowed it in a creative way. Those waves dash against the truth and dissolve, but only to become transformed again into other waves. These were my thoughts. So he was doing a sort of nature-based visual auditory meditation. When suddenly a very dark and elderly man approached me and almost demanded that I ought to listen to him. Like somebody said, hey, young man, listen, I, I want to talk to you. I was rather taken aback. His manner was mildly aggressive, but his attitude was on the whole kindly and sympathetic, as I soon discovered. Young men, he said, why idle your time? Our acquaintance quickly developed into a warm friendship. This person introduced himself as a retired government official who lived in Telipalai, a village close to Jaffna there, with his wife and family. Within minutes of knowing this person, he was telling me about Yogaswami with great enthusiasm. It is disgraceful, he observed, that you haven't bothered to visit our sage who lives in this island. This gentleman very kindly offered to pay my train fare to Jaffna and also invited me to live in his home as long as I wished. We spent several eventful weeks together in Jaffna. He took me to all the famous Hindu temples in that part of the country, including the Nalur temple. This person, being a devout Hindu, he sincerely believed that it was necessary to purify me as a preparation for the forthcoming visit to Yogaswami. You see that in between the lines here you find some valuable pearls, some beautiful ideas about what people believed, how they acted, and while some of these beliefs are far out, some of them belong to a tradition. In the mornings, before sunrise, his wife would recite hymns from the Hindu scriptures. Frequently, I had to dress in a white dhoti with sandal wood paste and holy ash applied liberally on my body as a necessary requirement before entering certain temples. I did not quite see the religious or spiritual significance of these rituals, but perhaps they added a certain color to these otherwise drab and solemn occasions. As the weeks passed by, much though I was enjoying the hospitality of my generous host, I was nevertheless beginning to feel rather impatient that we had not yet visited Yoga Swami. I even wondered whether my friend was trying to convert me to the Hindu way of life. In any case, such a course seemed pointless, as I was already rather sympathetic to the Vedanta philosophy. Later, 
I realized that my friend was sincere in his assurance that a preliminary period of preparation was absolutely essential before having an interview with Yoga Swami. Nearly a month had passed and I was longing to return home to Colombo. As I was fast losing my earlier interest in Yoga Swami, I finally decided to leave Jaffna without visiting him. When I broke the news to, of this decision to my friend, he gleamed triumphantly. Ah, I think the right moment has come. Now that you are losing interest in him, you are in a ready state to see him. We shall go tomorrow. After he had spoken, I was convinced for the first time as to the real purpose unreeling this long period of waiting and preparation. We decided to meet Yogaswami the following morning at sunrise, which was supposedly the best time for such a meeting. It was a cool and peaceful morning, except for the rattling noises owing to the gentle breeze that swayed the tall and graceful Palmyra trees. We walked silently through the narrow and dusty roads. The city was still asleep. Yogaswami lived in a tiny hut that had been especially constructed for him in the garden of a home in the city of Jaffna. A rich devotee said, come on, man, I will build you a bungalow to live. And he was living in that hut in a garden somewhere. The hut had a thatched roof and was on the whole characterized by the simplicity of a peasant dwelling. Yoga Swami looked exactly as I had imagined him to be like. He looked very old and frail. He was of medium height and his long gray hair fell over his shoulders. When we first saw him, he was sweeping the garden with a long broom. He slowly walked towards us and opened the gates. I am doing a coolie's job, he said. Why have you come to see a coolie? Because in India, you know, the servants sweep the floor and all that. It's the caste system. He chuckled with a mischievous twinkle in the eyes. I noticed that he spoke good English with an impeccable accent. As there was usually an esoteric meaning to all his statements, but again, here he's pushing it, I met this kind of people who always try to interpret whatever a guru says, twisting it like there is absolutely necessarily an esoteric meaning. Again, by synchronicity, because if the guru is connected with the cosmic consciousness, everything will be connected somewhere, somehow. But most often, there does not exist the interest or the intention that the guru would always say words of wisdom non-stop like he is a dictionary of proverbs and aphorisms or something. It's very tiresome. No, but by synchronicity, of course, things happen. So because he thinks there should have been an esoteric meaning, I interpreted these words to mean this. I am a spiritual cleaner of human beings. Why do you want to be cleansed? Because he was cleaning the floor. He gently beckoned us into his hut. Yoga Swami sat cross-legged on a slightly elevated platform. That's this kind of dais. They always have it for gurus in India. And we sat on the floor facing him. We had not yet spoken a single word. That morning, we hardly spoke, for he did all the talking. Talking to him was like unnecessary, for one had only to think of something, and he became immediately aware of the thoughts. After we had comfortably sat on the floor, Yoga Swami closed his eyes and remained motionless for nearly half an hour. 
he seemed to live in another dimension of his being during that time. One wondered whether the serenity of his facial expression was attributable to, to the joy of his inner meditation. Was he sleeping or resting? Was he trying to probe into our minds? My friend indicated with a nervous smile that we were really lucky to have been received by him. Yoga Swami suddenly opened his eyes. Those luminous eyes brightened the darkness of the entire hut. Look at the eyes of Ramana Maharishi. Look at the eyes of Hazrat Inayat Khan and others. Look at the eyes of Ramakrishna and you'll see what he means by it. His eyes were as mellow as they were luminous, the mellowness of compassion. I was beginning to feel hungry and tired, and thereupon Yogaswami asked, what will you have for breakfast? At that moment, I would have accepted anything that I was offered, but I thought of idli, the rice cakes of South India, and bananas, which were popular items of food in Jaffna. In a flash, there appeared a stranger in the hut who respectfully bowed, and offered us exactly those items of food from a tray that he was holding. A little later, my friend wished for coffee, but before he could express his request in words, the same man reappeared on the scene and served us with coffee. After, so there was no Hatha Yoga there, they didn't have this limitation with coffee and caffeine and all that. After breakfast, Yoga Swami asked us to not throw away the banana skins, which were for the cow. He spoke loudly to the cow that was grazing in the garden. The cow clumsily walked right into the hut. He fed her with the banana skins. She licked his hands gratefully and tried to sit on the floor. Yoga Swami held out the last remaining banana skin to the cow and said, Now leave us alone. Vali, she was called Vali the cow, don't disturb us. I'm having some visitors. The cow nodded her head in obeisance and faithfully carried out his instructions. After the cow had left us, Yogaswami closed his eyes again and he seemed once more to be lost in a world of his own. I was indeed curious to know what exactly Yogaswami did on these occasions by closing his eyes. I wondered whether he was meditating. It was an appropriate moment to bring up the subject. But before I could ask any questions, he suddenly started speaking. Look at those trees. The trees are meditating. Meditation is silence. If you realize deeply inside that you really know nothing, then you would be truly meditating. Such truthfulness is the right soil for silence. Silence is meditation. Yogaswami bent forward eagerly. You must be simple. You must be utterly naked in your consciousness. When you have reduced yourself to nothing, when your ego has disappeared, when you have become nothing, you will know God. For God is nothing. Nothing is everything. Because I am nothing, you see, because I am a beggar, I own everything. So nothing means everything. Do you understand? Tell us about this state of nothingness requested my friend with eager anticipation. It means that you genuinely desire 
nothing. It means that you can honestly say that you know nothing. It also means that you are not interested in doing anything about this state of nothingness. Like you don't want to get out of it. What, I speculated, did he mean by know nothing? This state of pure being in contrast to becoming. You think you know, but in fact you are ignorant. When you see that you know nothing about yourself, then you are yourself God. Yoga Swami frequently referred to this state of silence. He spoke of it as though it were his very life. To one who has not experienced this state of samadhi, any description of it will necessarily remain an abstraction. In his presence, what once caught a fleeting glimpse of that bliss. Whether Yoga Swami's consciousness expanded so as to include those in his immediate presence, or whether his feeling of indescribable elation or peaceful bliss or samadhi was based on self-deception, is a matter that cannot be easily decided. Almost everything that Yoga Swami said seemed so amazingly simple that one could not help becoming temporarily oblivious to the practical implications of his statements. Then, for a moment, as though to assert the independence of my mind, I tried to scrutinize his sayings in my mind without asking any questions. Is this state of silence an act of divine grace? Is it possible to induce this state in oneself? Does one come by this state accidentally, without any exertion of will? Would not any attempt to induce silence inevitably amplify the ego? Yoga Swami, who was evidently aware of these doubts and difficulties, came to my assistance with an unforgettable epigrammatic remark. Like he gave a Zen statement here. He says, there is silence when you realize that there is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. Our conversation, which was taking an interesting turn, was interrupted by a man who walked into the hut. This person was apparently an ardent devotee of Yoga Swami. He lit a candle, placed a few jasmine flowers on the floor, and finally prostrated himself on the cold cement floor before kissing Yoga Swami's feet. Bloody fool, yelled Yoga Swami. This is not an altar. Are you worshipping me or are you worshipping yourself? Why worship another? The poor man withdrew into a corner of the hut with reverence and trembling. Do you think, went on Yoga Swami, that you can find God by worshipping another? You do such silly, stupid things, offering flowers and lighting candles, do you think that you can find God by giving bribes? Of course, he was exaggerating in a Shaivistic way, because, of course, there is Bhakti Yoga, there is Guru Yoga, and he was aware of it, and he allowed it to happen, but at the same time he was uh, a little bit grumpy about it. In situations of this kind, Yoga Swami's severe criticism did not appear to originate from his pedagogic role 
of a guru or spiritual teacher, as many of his disciples would probably have supposed, but were rather the casual and incidental remarks of someone who was deeply moved by human folly. Now, that's the conclusion of Shushunaga, but his disciples never said that he was not a good guru. So, be careful, everybody sees what they want to see through this chameleonic nature. Everybody is mirroring, is mirrored by the guru with something else. He thought that he was not a guru, he was just a very high soul who was detached and moved by when he saw human stupidity. Indeed, Yoga Swami discouraged the recording of his sayings which he likened to the rubbish that did not deserve preservation. He apparently regarded that the veracity of a spontaneously uttered statement depended on the unique and unrepeatable circumstances that gave rise to it. Which means like Swami Lakshmanju, he says, today I can tell you one thing, in three weeks from now I can tell you the opposite of it, and both will be true. And it's not because I changed opinion, it's because it applies to different circumstances. That's the same chameleonic thing, adapting to the circumstances. Yoga Swami waved his hand with disapproval at the man who had just worshipped him. He then pressed his quivering hands against his heart in an eloquent gesture and exclaimed loudly, Look, it is here. God is here. It is here. For a few brief moments, he closed his eyes again. These interludes were probably intended to allow the meaning of his pronouncements to sink gradually into the minds of his listeners. There was a strange, majestic, and Buddha-like dignity whenever Yogaswami closed his eyes in meditation. The erect spine and the cross-legged posture, together with a face that was apparently asleep, but yet supremely awake. The time is short, but the subject is vast. He, wish, he whispered with extreme gravity. This enigmatic statement may mean that the subject of understanding God or reality is vast, whereas the time at one's disposal is so limited that it should not be wasted in inessentials, such as rituals and ceremonies. There was a question that I hesitated to ask, but it was an important one for me at that time. How does one overcome depression? No sooner have I formulated this question in my mind, that Yoga Swami answered it instantaneously. Now, what is depression? You mean pessimism, don't you? Pessimism and optimism are the same. They are the two sides of the same coin. You are no better off when you are pessimistic than when you are optimistic. And you are also no better off when you are optimistic than when you are pessimistic. Optimism and pessimism, as reflected in joy and sorrow, are different angles from which you view life. But life is neither one nor the other. If you look at life exactly as it is and not from any angle, free from this duality, then life is neither pessimistic nor optimistic. Here, of course, philosophically, in an absolute way, he is true. From the standpoint of the law of resonance, 
it's better to be optimistic until you reach that point of non-duality. Because pessimism is a resonance with hell. And the life of the pessimistic person is a life which is more painful than the life of an optimistic person, although both of them live in a maya. As he was discoursing, there walked in an elderly American lady who quickly removed her sandals and joined our company on the floor. The familiar manner with which she smiled with everyone present and the affectionate way in which she greeted Yoga Swami indicated that she was probably a frequent visitor to his hut. So, what have you been up to? Yoga Swami asked her rather playfully. He was playing with her. He was asking, so what have you done? You know, like he suddenly became like a kid. I've been to the Hindu temple in the neighborhood. It was so peaceful there. You mean that stone temple? Asked Yoga Swami laughingly. You went to worship the stone gods in a stone temple? There is only one temple and that is yourself. And to find God, you have to know your temple. There is no other temple. No one can save you. What about Christ and Buddha? Can they not help us? Interjected the American lady. From her demeanor, it was clear that her question was not motivated by a desire to obtain information, but was rather the reaction of her wounded religious susceptibilities arising from Yoga Swami's remarks. The Buddha and Christ saved themselves through their own efforts. Afterwards, the priests got hold of the rubbish and propagated it. The priests played the fool. In this spiritual business, each one for himself. Don't believe anyone who promises to help you. No one will help because no one can help. Anyone may point the path, but you have to do the walking. Again, if somebody points the path, they actually help you. But he is right from the other perspective that the guru cannot do the practice for you. You have to do the practice according to your own aspiration. As Yoga Swami continued to talk, we listened with, to him with rapt attention, devouring every word and treasuring every moment spent in that little hut. Several persons were now standing at the narrow entrance to the hut, which was fast becoming crowded. Why do you all come to see me? It was a question that was addressed to everyone present and not merely to the latest visit, like he felt he was asking him also. I'm just as much as a fool as any of you. I'm searching, groping in the dark, trying to understand. I really cannot help you. There is nothing that I can give you. There is nothing that you can take away from here. Nobody believes that I am a fool, but I am a fool. But you are not, snapped the American lady with impatience, as though to expose his false modesty. Perhaps, observed Yoga Swami, I am a different sort of fool. A fool who willingly admits the fact of his foolishness. Yoga Swami, he concludes, died a few years ago, but what he imparted in his characteristically casual manner will always remain living truths and a source of inspiration to all who met him. The experience of conversing with a living master in a memorable interview was far more instructive than reading many books relating to the ageless spiritual and philosophical wisdom. Just 
for completion. I have here a couple of pages, about three pages, just describing from a material on internet his life. Because here is just an interview by one fellow and one fellow with a peculiar attitude. He is, the article is uh, subtitled, He held truth in the palm of his hand, spreading love and the knowledge of Shiva. At 3.30 a.m. on a Wednesday in May of 1872, a son was born to Ambalavanar and Shinachi Amma, not far from the Kandaswami Temple in Mahavidapuram, Sri Lanka. He was named Sadashivan. His mother died before he reached the age of 10. His aunt and uncle raised him. In his school days, he was bright but independent, often studying alone high in the mango trees. After finishing school, he joined government service as a storekeeper in the irrigation department and served for years in the verdant backwoods in Kilino, Chichi or whatever. The decisive point of his life came when he found his guru outside Nalur Temple in 1905. He was therefore 33 years old when he found his guru. As he walked along the road, sage Kelapan, a disheveled sadhu, one of these dreadlock sadhus, shook the bars from within the chariot shed where he camped and shouted loudly at the passing Brahmachari, Hey, who are you? Sadashivan was transfixed by that simple piercing inquiry. That there is not one wrong thing. It is as it is. Who knows? The Gyani roared and suddenly everything vanished in a sea of light. At a later encounter amid a festival crowd, Chalapa ordered him, go within, meditate, stay here until I return. He came back three days later to find Yogaswami still waiting for his master. Yogaswami surrendered himself completely to his guru and life for him became one of intense spiritual discipline, severe austerity and stern trials. One such trial ordered by Chalapa Chalapa was a continuous meditation which Chalapa demanded of Sadashivan and Kantiravelu, probably another disciple, in 1909. So that was four years later. For 40 days and nights, the two disciples sat upon a large flat rock. Chalapa came every day and gave them only tea or water. On the morning of the 40th day, the guru brought some string hoppers. Instead of feeding the hungry yogis, he threw the food high in the air, proclaiming, that's all I have for you. Two elephants cannot be tied to one post. It was his way of saying, two powerful men cannot reign in one place. Following this ordination, their sannyasa diksha, he sent the initiates away and he never received them again. Chalapa passed away in 1911. Yoga Swami, obeying his guru's last orders, sat on the roots of a huge olive tree at Kolumbu Turai. Under this tree he stayed, exposed to the roughest weather, unmindful of the hardship and serene as ever. This was his home for the next few years. Intent on his meditative regime, he would chase away curious onlookers and worshipful devotees with stones and harsh words. After much persuasion, he was convinced to move into a nearby thatched hut 
provided by a devotee. This was the little house which was built for him because the guy was living under a tree. Few recognized his attainments, but this changed significantly one day when he traveled by train from Colombo to Jaffna. An esteemed and scholarly pundit riding in another car repeatedly stated that he sensed a great jyoti, a great light on the train. When he saw Shiva Yogaswami disembark, he cried, you see, there he is. The pundit cancelled his discourses, located and rushed to Shiva Yogaswami's ashram, prostrating at his feet. His visit to the hut became the clarion call that here indeed was a worshipful being. From then on, people of all ages and all walks of life, irrespective of creed, caste or race, went to Yogaswami. They sought solace and spiritual guidance and none went away empty-handed. He influenced their lives profoundly. Many realized how blessed they were only after years had passed. Yogaswami's infinite compassion never ceased to impress. He would regularly walk long miles to visit Chela Chichi Ammayara, saintly woman, immersed in meditation and tapas. Yogaswami would feed her, and there was, there was a yogini somewhere in the neighborhood. Yogaswami would feed her and attend to duties as she sat in samadhi. Upon her directive, her devotees, some of the most learned elite of Sri Lanka, transferred their devotion to Sadguru Yogaswami after her passing away. <clears throat> he would mysteriously enter the homes of devotees just when they needed him, when ill or at the time of their death. He would stand over them, apply holy ash and safeguard their passage. He was also known to have remarkable healing powers and a comprehensive knowledge of medicinal use of herbs. Countless stories tell how he healed from afar. He would prepare remedies for ill devotees. Cures always came as he prescribed. When not out visiting devotees, Yogaswami would receive them in his hut. From dawn to dusk, they came and listened, wrapped in devotion. In 1940, Yogaswami went to India on pilgrimage to Varanasi and Chidambaram. His famous letter from Varanasi states, After wanderings far in an earnest quest, I came to Kashi, that's the Hindu name of Varanasi, and saw the Lord of the universe within myself. The herb that you seek is under your feet. One day, he visited Sri Ramana Maharishi in his Arunachalam ashram. The two simply sat all afternoon facing each other in eloquent silence. Not a word was spoken. Back in Jaffna, he explained, we said all that had to be said. Followers became more numerous, so he gave them all work to do, seva to God and to the community. In December 1934, he had them begin his monthly journal, Shiva Thondan, meaning both servant of Shiva and service to Shiva. As the years progressed, Swami more and more enjoyed traversing the Jaffna Peninsula by car, and it became a common sight to see him chaperone through the villages. On February 22, 1961, Swami sent uh, outside to give his cow, Vali, his banana leaf after eating, as he always did. Vali was a gentle cow, but this day 
she rushed her master, struck his leg, and knocked him down. The hip was broken, not a trivial matter for an 89-year-old in those days. Swami spent months in the hospital, and once released, he was confined to a wheelchair. Devotees were heart-stricken by the accident, yet he remained unshaken. He ever affirmed and he affirmed Shiva's will prevails within and without, abide in his will. Shiva was now confined in his ashram, and devotees flocked to him in even greater numbers, for he could no longer escape on long walks. He was equipped, captured. With infinite patience and love, he meted out his wisdom, guidance and grace throughout his final few years. At 3.30 a.m. on a Wednesday, at exactly the same time when he was born, in March of 1964, Yoga Swami passed quietly from his, this earth at the age of 91. The nation stopped when the radio spread news of his great departure and devotees thronged to Jaffna to bid him farewell. Though enlightened souls are often interred, it was his wish to be cremated. Today, a temple complex is being erected on the site of the hut from which he ruled Sri Lanka for 50 years. This is a more documentary article telling you, so you know a little bit of a yogi that 99% of you had not heard about until today. In Sri Lanka, they had a great yogi, passed away in 1964. Swami Shivananda passed away in 1963, so about the same time with Shivananda. Great yogi, this one didn't write books. Shivananda wrote 200 articles, books and brochures. This one didn't write books. was a different temperament. You saw from the article of Shushunaga Viraperuna, more colorful, where he presented more the personality of the man, that sometimes he could be very controversial in many ways, and all in all, a very beautiful yogi. Yes, I know, this is not a tantric yogi, maybe tantric only in the way in which being a Shaiva, he used mantras, yantras, so tantric in the meaning of the right hand tantra, yes, but otherwise an ascetic yogi and a yogi belonging to a beautiful Shaivistic tradition. I hope uh, the contact with Yoga Swami inspire. I hope you found at least one sentence inspiring in all this article, like about karma, about reflection, about this, about that, about symbolic meanings, about whatever. In this way, trying to understand and to fathom more clearly this universe of samadhi, this universe of cosmic consciousness, the universe of enlightenment, and what people make out of it. If we will not find the Ramakrishna text, I'm going to read to you about Ramakrishna, because Ramakrishna has one of the most impressive lives in the modern yoga, and Ramakrishna, please remember always, he revived yoga. Until 1850, due to the Islamic rule and due to the British, Portuguese and other kinds of rule, the Hindus had lost confidence in their heritage, in their spiritual heritage. More and more people were trying to be like the British, 
including converting to Christianity, to Anglicanism, and so on. No, it was a, And then Ramakrishna came, and he showed to people the value of the great spiritual tradition on which they were sleeping. Of course, there were a few yogis here and there, but none of them went public like Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna went public, books were written about him, and this was the revival. This is where all the modern yoga started from. Then other gurus, like Yukteswar and others, they got courage, they came forward, and they said, we are sleeping on a gold mine, let us teach you the technology of yoga, the techniques of samadhi, everything which is there. And thus modern yoga, in the last 150, 100 and whatever, 70 years, is starting with people like those. And the modern gurus, of course, they are gurus of Kali Yuga. Like if Ramakrishna was smoking cigarettes and got a cancer in the throat, then you can say, how perfect was that? How close to perfection was Ramakrishna? Look, he was just a poor guru working hard in Kali Yuga with a lot of crazy people. (laughs) And therefore, it's exactly like I would ask you to swim Olympic style, but I'm asking you to swim in a pool full of mud. It's difficult to swim in the mud. And therefore, you will not be perfect. (laughs) There will be obstacles. But we have to see through this maya, and we have to see the value of a Yoga Swami, of an Aurobindo, of a Shivananda, of a Yogananda, (laughs) and all the others. All of them had their funny things, but all of them have given us the Yoga tradition. If today... We know about yoga, including what you know in Agama, chakras and nadis, and it's all coming from this same vein, which these people have preserved in the last 170 years. It so happens that we believe (coughs) that in Agama, you've got perhaps the best form of yoga in the world. No, that's a different story. But all the yoga which exists today, it's coming from these people revived and shown to the world in the last 170 years. And I hope therefore that Yoga Swami, in his meditation-based style, (coughs) we don't know if he ever was doing any Hatha Yoga, probably not. Then, in his style, he inspired the people in his own spirituality. I think this will be enough for tonight. I'll I'll continue with such inspiration. Thank you all for joining. And the text, of course, this will be uploaded. The text can be made available to you as well. It's not a secret text. It's an article published many years ago by this Viraperuna author. And therefore, I hope it uh, will encourage you to maybe even search more I have seen books, I have books with some of the words of um, Yoga Swami teachings from him and others, because his devotees, of course, gathered his teachings and put them together. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining. Let us stop now.